Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Our guest today is Oscar Fernandez, who's at Wellesley College and who has written a fascinating book entitled Everyday Calculus. As you might guess from the title, this book is largely a journey into daily life, showing where and how mathematics in general and calculus in particular shows up. Oscar, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me, Jim. It's a pleasure. You've written a very intriguing book, Oscar, but it is a book that does mathematics in addition to talking about mathematics. Whom do you see as the audience for the book? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. So um, the the audience I envision is uh, really split up into sort of a two different categories. You know, I, I wrote the book with, with two readers in mind. The first one is really uh, curious about math, uh, maybe even calculus and its applications, um, but may not be too comfortable with equations, the actual math of calculus. Um, the second group is probably a bit more comfortable with math. Um, maybe somebody enrolled in a calculus course or somebody who took such a course sometime earlier in their life, uh, but for whatever reason may have missed applications of calculus and still kind of yearns for those days or, or is curious about what those are. Uh, so that's, that's the, uh, the, 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 sort of a core group that I had in mind, but certainly, you know, I, I tried to write the book so that um, even if uh, you've had no uh, math experience at all, you could still uh, read through the exposition of the book and uh, not miss anything from not being able to uh, do the math. I'll say that that's really a good idea because one of the things that I've found is that people enjoy reading about math, even if they don't have to do math, and maybe sometimes especially if they don't have to do math. But as I was reading your book, it occurred to me that this would be an absolutely wonderful book for someone to read after they've completed a first semester of calculus. Because when you take a first semester of calculus, most of the ideas that you discuss in the book that from a technical aspect are included in the first semester calculus. And normally a student who's taking the course doesn't really have the time to breathe. But after the first semester of calculus, when they've got a break between first and second semester, it's a great time to pick up your book. At least that's what I thought. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I, I certainly had that um, group of, uh, of readers in mind. And, uh, you know, I've, I've taught calculus myself and a lot of times, um, as a professor, and, and you know this as well, uh, you, ha- you are charged with teaching not only the material, but trying your best to give your students some sense of the applications. And uh, this is one of, the, one of the great things about writing a book, which is you can um, sort of steer the direction that you'd like to uh, explore. And I really wanted this to be um, pretty much about the applications of calculus. I mean, sure, there needs to be some discussion of, of the math behind that. Uh, but that's why I, I also thought, you know, Certain things that we can discuss, like um, how coffee cools or uh, how to sort of look up at the sky and see uh, back in time, these are things that we can really explain without math. There's some intuition that we all have, uh, and we can borrow that intuition to tell us about calculus, and that was really one of the main themes of, of the book. I think that it would be a good idea to start off by telling people who haven't had much experience about what calculus is, because most people understand that geometry could be described as the study of shapes. Do you think you could give a relatively short description of calculus? Sure. So, uh, you know, the the biggest uh, thing that happens in calculus, um, from from my perspective, is you start to study uh, the way uh, quantities change. Uh, so you might be interested, for example, in uh, velocity, uh, how fast a car is moving. You might be interested if you're uh, in business or finance, um, uh, revenue or profit. You know, uh, are you making money? Are you losing money? Um, or maybe you're a, a very physical uh, sort of uh, soul and you're interested in um, how the planets move or possibly uh, if you're in biology, maybe uh, heart uh, blood flow through the heart. Um, so calculus is really a, uh, a collection of, 
ways to think about problems that involve some changing quantity. Uh, and one of the pillars of calculus, which is differentiation and derivatives, uh, describe exactly that, how these quantities change. And uh, the second half is really um, very related to this, and it involves more trying to add up uh, lots of very small quantities. So this second pillar is called integration. So if you're interested, for example, in um, finding possibly uh, how long, uh, estimating a wait time, how long you're going to wait on a call if you're calling maybe your cell phone company, um, this, turns out, can be written as an integral problem. And there, there's a section in the book that I, uh, I discussed this briefly in. Um, so between integration and differentiation, those are the, the two basic um, pillars of calculus. Yeah, that's basically how I describe it, too, when I teach the course. But now let's discuss a few specifics about your book. Early on, I was very intrigued by your explanation of the difference between DC and AC current and how Thomas Edison made one of his few horrible market decisions by failing to understand the impact that mathematics had on this question. And perhaps you could elaborate a little on this. Yeah, this is a, this is actually a great story. So this is in, a, a, the, I believe, the first chapter of, of the book, um, uh, relatively early on. So, um, you know, Edison, uh, being a genius uh, inventor, um, had one major he could not have foreseen, um, I described in the book, which is that um, he based his whole power system on direct current. And direct current is, you know, easy to understand if you think about the, the batteries, say, in your phone or um, in your digital camera. So those have a fixed voltage. You know, we're used to thinking about maybe 9-volt batteries. Um, and voltage is kind of a, the a, a amount of electrical energy um, that uh, the battery has. And Edison's plants turned out uh, operated on a voltage uh, that was fixed. So I believe it was about 110 volts. Uh, so this is a fixed number. It didn't change. Um, but it turns out, as I, as I say in the, in the first chapter, that um, the uh, wires that are needed to transmit the electricity coming from these plants, um, they have a certain radius. And when you have a voltage of 110 volts, the radius for these wires is, is relatively big. Um, and when you need to uh, uh, string really long wires to maybe get uh, electricity to your house 10 miles down the road, turns out that this radius has to be even bigger. Uh, and this is one of these rational functions that I talk about in the first uh, chapter of the book. So uh, poor Edison ended up having to uh, have power plants about every two miles from each other. So, you know, in, in one sense, you might think, oh, this is great because I can just, uh, you know, build lots of power plants, you know, lots of demand. But, you know, at that time, this is a relatively new uh, energy system, transmission system. There were a lot of startup costs, um, and, and the economies of, uh, of scale just weren't there. So if you, if you switch the uh, uh, lid a little bit uh, and you take a look at this function, um, it turns out that if you can allow for higher voltages, the radius of your power line uh, gets smaller. And simultaneously, you can string longer power lines. Um, so this is pretty much the, the downfall, I write, of uh, Edison's DC current in a way. Uh, a little bit later on, um, alternating current came along, which allowed you to change the voltage, uh, in, in particular to make it uh, uh, much higher. And this is why we have transformers, which uh, I, I describe in the book. You can see all around you when you uh, walk outside. And uh, these transformers take the really high voltages from the power plants and step them down to something that you know, is 110 or 220, depending on what country you live, so that our appliances can work. Uh, so with a really high voltage, you get a really small power line radius, and there's no danger that you'll walk under a power line and the thing will fall on you because it's so heavy. Um, so, so poor Edison, you know, despite the fact that he was a genius inventor, uh, neglecting uh, a little bit of the, of the rational function that was working around there, um, eventually spelled doom for his, uh, for his uh, DC empire. And I think it's, it's a wonderful story. Yeah, I thought it was a wonderful story as well. And I never heard it, and I thought it was great. And when you speak of rational functions, um, 
Rational functions mean things that are basically the quotients of polynomials, but you also discuss a couple of other types of functions that underlie calculus, namely trigonometric and logarithmic functions. But my understanding is that when calculus was originally discovered or invented by Newton, Bernoulli, uh, and all the other people who were looking at it at the time, um, I think that the function concept had not been explicitly enunciated and it's sort of curious that they went through, they could develop all of calculus with, without having this incredible tool of functions available for them to work with. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. And, and, you know, this is, math history is such a, uh, you know, interesting subject. And at, at, as you say, back in the, back in the day when um, calculus was being developed, there wasn't even a clear notion of, of what a function was. You know, if you go back to, to Euler and, and some of his writings, one of his best definitions for a function is an equation involving some variables and some constants, basically. This is a, a big paraphrasing, but it is, it is nowhere near sort of the formalism that we have today. Um, and one of the interesting things is that uh, this pops up also in the book um, when I discuss the integral. So the integral that we use and we teach today as part of calculus is really due to Riemann, who actually, uh, you know, wasn't even alive until the 1800s, way after Newton and and Leibniz first uh, started uh, thinking about calculus in the 1600s. So the the way we teach calculus today is really a sort of an amalgamation of uh, events that are not at all chronological. Um, And part of that is that, you know, as we've gotten more sophisticated with the math and understood a bit better uh, how to make these things rigorous, we've um, incorporated that into the curriculum so that now we have a, a nice sort of pretty much linear uh, sequence of topics we teach students. But in terms of the history, it is, it is fascinating. Um, I often tell my students, um, I'm t- teaching a course right now, for example, on Fourier analysis, and uh, it's named after a, a, a Fourier who tried at some point to write functions in terms of sines and cosines. And uh, it, he showed that it could be done, but I tell my students that a lot of times uh, what a lot of famous mathematicians would do is they would um, do what are called formal calculations. So they would um, expand a function in terms of sines and cosines, but not provide any justification for why it's possible. Or in Newton's case, they would, you know, find the derivative of a function, but not really tell you exactly what the derivative means. Um, But, you know, so it usually takes somebody down the road, maybe hundreds of years later, to come in and formalize and make rigorous what all these things are. And and the function concept is, is exactly one of those things. I think that's very interesting because one of the things that happens with virtually all breakthrough theories, and at the time that calculus was developed, it was certainly a breakthrough theory, that you say something like only 12 men in the world can understand it. And that's what they said about Einstein's theory of relativity. But after a while, people start looking at it. They refine the presentation. um, They simplify the ideas. And now calculus, which was understood by only a few people, is now routinely taught to maybe millions or even tens of millions of people throughout the world every, uh, every year. So that's pretty interesting. And it's also a tribute to the value of teachers and the value of not necessarily always discovering new things, but presenting old things better. Yeah. And if I could just say one more thing there, I, you know, I, this reminds me of a quick conversation I had with a student a few days ago. She's, you know, uh, in her first year and she's interested in um, possibly exploring math as a major. And she asked me, you know, I, I can't even think about what you would do uh, in terms of research for math. Like, if you're a chemist, I understand that you have a chemistry lab and I can sort of picture what you do, but how does a mathematician do research? And um, one of the first uh, responses I, I had for her was that, you know, she's in a calculus one class. And I said, well, uh, all of the calculus you're learning was math research at some point in the, in, the, in the past. And it's exactly this idea that at some point, you know, this was cutting edge stuff and nobody really knew exactly what it all meant. And it literally took a few hundred years for us to figure it all out. But we figured it out to a point now that we can teach it at, you know, at a high school level, at a, at a first year university level. 
You know, I had almost the identical question asked last night when I was <laughs> teaching a course in, in third semester calculus. A student asked me, how long is it, how long is the interval between discovery and application? Awesome. And I said, uh, <laughs> and um, I'm sure that we'd each look at this probably pretty much the same. Some math is discuss is produced because it has a specific need. Like I think Newton invented calculus to study mechanics and gravitation. And, and then there was Einstein who used differential geometry about 30 years after it was discovered. And some math I don't think will ever be applied. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm pretty much of the same, of the same mindset. I'm, I always hold that hope that, you know, even for the, uh, for the, the pure mathematicians and mathematicians that, uh, uh, don't necessarily are, are not necessarily motivated by applications that even sometime in their future, you know, some, some of them be used. Um, but certainly it's, it's uh, incredible to, to see sometimes how things you might not have thought to have any application uh, end up showing up in the most remote places. Yeah, it's wonderful. I must admit that's one of the joys of mathematics. Getting back to your book, what made you decide to introduce rates of change through stock prices rather than the more conventional approach that uses average and instantaneous velocities? Ah, yes. So that's that's a so when I was a, a you know uh, formulating the um, the book and the, and the plot structure, uh, just because of the way things worked out. One of the real features of the book that I that I tried very hard to uh, stick to was um, I, I wanted to write each chapter so that the math contained in that chapter would match the math you would learn in the corresponding chapter of a calculus book. Uh, so, for example, the first chapter in, in my book discusses only functions. There are no derivatives. There are no integrals. If you open up the first chapter of a typical calculus book, that's all you'll find, only functions. Um, so in the, in the second chapter is when I start talking a little bit about um, derivatives, but in terms of the plot story, I'm still sort of um, uh, waking up and maybe getting dressed. So uh, the usual way to uh, in introduce derivatives by looking at, let's say, the velocity of a, of a car or a, a falling object, I thought would have done the job, but I wanted to really drive home the point, which um, uh, I, I say uh, throughout the book and also in the epilogue, that uh, um, derivatives really describe change. And I started thinking to myself, what's something in the morning uh, ritual of most of us that we do that, you know, encompasses lots of change? Uh, and the first thing that came to my mind was just the economy. You know, there's interest rates are always changing. Stock prices are changing. Um, there's unemployment rate changing. There's so much change in the economy. And I thought, oh, this is great. So I will uh, try to use this to, to introduce the concept of a derivative. One of the things that I liked about your book, <laughs> which you sort of alluded to a moment ago when you were talking, was that you sort of have a, uh, a continual theme throughout the book. You're going through what might very well be described as a typical day, although I suspect that what happened was there were a lot of anecdotes <laughs> and incidents that got plastered together that took place throughout your life. But it was nice because what you're doing is you're going through a typical day, things are happening happening to you, and you're examining these things the way that mathematicians think about these things. And of course, that's not the type of thing that's done in a calculus book, but this isn't a calculus book. It's a book about calculus and about life, and I like that approach. Yeah, and you know, I think this, this goes back to one of, the, one of my main motivations for, um, for writing the book in this way. Um, you know, it it's really goes back to, I think, the feelings a lot of us have with math. So uh, my mother, for example, says that... Um, she has vivid recollections of sort of her, quote, math wall. You know, when, when she got to algebra and she was asked to solve 2x plus 3 equals 7, she just she couldn't do it. She, she, to this day, says, I just don't understand, you know, a variable x. You know, it's, it's, it's not something that clicks for me. Um, so I think the majority of us have a sort of our own math wall, some, some point that we hit where we say, you know what, this is, this is too hard. This uh, subject is not for me. Um, so that was part of my motivation for the book. I wanted to say, well, um, there are all these things that happen around you, all of these everyday things that a lot of times we, we don't think too much about, like the cooling of coffee or um, the GPS that we use from our phone. But in reality, if you stop to think about it and, and really ask a few very critical questions, you'll, you'll discover that the math is just 
right there in, in plain sight. It just requires a bit more tinkering and a bit more playing uh, as if you were sort of back in your childhood and just in a sandbox with a bunch of toys. Um, so, I, so I really wanted to encompass that in the book and, and, and really give readers a, a way to approach math from what they already know, their intuition about the world. Well, I think um, you mentioned the cooling of coffee, and I like that application because Newton's law of cooling is what you use to bring in exponential functions. And this is an everyday application, and normally in a calculus text, or indeed in a pre-calculus text, or any time they talk about exponential functions, they start talking about either radioactive decay or uh, you know unencumbered growth rates, but most of us encounter a lot more coffee than radioactive materials. <laughs> exactly. And, and this, this is related to the earlier point of uh, you know, why uh, choose stock prices to introduce the derivatives. Um, and, and that's the same uh, idea there. I, I wanted to really uh, make sure that as much as possible, the examples that I use um, were things that really are everyday. Um, you know, coffee cooling down, uh, you turn on the TV and you, you see a graph of a stock chart um, so, so definitely, yeah. I'm, I'm not uh, one that encounters radioactive materials myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I could relate an incident where, when I was, uh, uh, I made a mistake of volunteering for a medical experiment when I was young. I didn't know exactly what it was, but they pumped an armful of radioactive material into my blood and then withdrew it every other day for two months. And I learned something very important. Never volunteer. They tell you that in the Army. But anyway, um, another topic that's often extremely difficult for students to understand is that of discontinuous functions. And I like the way that you introduced it by talking about multivitamins and it and impressed me that also what you discussed applies to other drugs such as insulin for diabetics. Yeah, exactly. So the, the idea here is that, um, so what is a dis, what, what is a continuous function? So, so I give a very, um, uh, verbal definition of this. So if you, uh, you know, take a pencil, you just draw a curve with your hand, uh, you know, never lifting up your hand from the paper, then, then what you've drawn is a, is a continuous function. So in English, the word is, is pretty much the same as what the math meaning is. A discontinuous function, then, you would sort of draw a curve, and then you would stop somewhere and pick up your hand and put it somewhere else in the paper and finish drawing the curve. So there's, a, there's maybe a gap um, uh, between the curves you drew. There are other types of discontinuous functions. But really, one way to think about this physically is, you know, you wake up in the morning, and um, if you're the person, that sort of person that takes vitamins, then... Before you take your vitamin, there is uh, zero uh, vitamin in you. So, you know, you certainly have some vitamin B6 and B12 floating around from, you know, just uh, the normal processes of your body. But once you take your vitamin, all of a sudden, discontinuously, as soon as that gets to, uh, begins to get digested, you are increasing the amount of, of vitamins in your body. Um, and I thought this was a, this was a way to... Uh, make this particular concept of a discontinuous function very real. And as you say, if, you know, you replace vitamin by maybe an insulin dose or uh, any other sort of injection of something, maybe <laughs> the radioactive material, <laughs> then you would have this, this same sort of discontinuity effect. Um, and in the, in the book, I believe this is in chapter two, there's a, there's a quick graph to show you sort of what you would expect, which is after you, you eat the vitamin, it gets digested, but eventually those vitamins are used up by your body. So you, know, you can draw a little curve to show you that as you, you know, go forward, uh, the amount of vitamin in your body is dropping as it's being digested. And the day restarts, and what do you do the next day? You take another vitamin. Yeah, it's um, actually it, there's a branch of mathematics called fixed point theory um, in which I did some work, which also the same phenomenon is encountered. What you do is you find the dosage to give someone that maintains the insulin in their body or the vitamins or whatever you want at essentially the same level to, you know, in order to maintain a, uh, you know, maintain a stable, healthy existence. Anyway, there were um, you talked about 
the changing unemployment rate, and I don't know whether or not uh, uh, whether or not you have anything in particular to say about this, but there was a uh, Richard Nixon was a uh, seminal figure in the lives of people of my age, and during the campaign for re-election in 1972, he said that the rate of inflation was decreasing, and a mathematician said this is the first time that a sitting president used the third derivative to advance his case for re-election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think it's uh, it's 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 funny, but at the same time, it's um, you know, it reminds me of, of uh, when um, let's see when when people make a, a statement such as uh, let's see, it, it's uh, a derivative. Um, oh, just it was on the tip of my tongue, so I'll, I'll remember it. But what I was going to say is that it's one of those examples where. Um, all of us maybe colloquially are using some mathematical language that, that may not exactly, uh, you know, translate to the average person to be mathematical. And this is exactly it. So the rate of inflation was decreasing. That's, um, you know, inflation is measured relative to some prior uh, level. So that's a rate. And then there's another rate that is decreasing. So you do get this, indeed get this third derivative. Um, but in, in this uh, context, uh, in the book, I believe this is chapter uh, chapter three. Um, I, I do talk about unemployment because it is one of these things that you hear on the radio or on TV, part of the economy. And you know, uh, both political parties will say things about unemployment all the time. They'll say the unemployment rate was decreasing, the unemployment rate was increasing, and uh, uh, you know, in calculus speak, that's really telling you information about the second derivative of the unemployment function. Um, and it's a really great way to, to just pick, pick out these things from the airways and say, wait a minute, you know, this is, um, there's a little math behind this. You know, it's not just uh, about the economy. There really is some unemployment function. And these pieces of information are telling me about the curvature of that function, which is one of the things we discuss uh, in that chapter of the book of how the second derivative relates to the curvature of the function. There's another idea that um, also relates to the idea that linear functions, straight lines, supply very good approximations to rates of change. And you used a beautiful example of this, which I think sort of brings advanced physics and mathematics and everyday life together. When you talk about how Einstein's theory of relativity plays an important role in the GPS system and how this idea of linearization that comes from calculus enables us to do the computations easily that show us how critical Einstein's theory is to maintaining our GPS system to work accurately. Yeah, so actually that, that's another beautiful story. And, and uh, before, I, before I talk about that, I just remembered. So uh, 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 I was trying to find the, the statement that I, that I hear uh, made sometimes. So the statement is, uh, you know, the object was traveling at a high rate of speed. Um, so, so sometimes people use this to, uh, to refer to just, you know, a high speed, but really if you take the rate of a speed, you're talking about the acceleration. Um, so this is another one of those instances where, you know, the words rate and what you take the rate of actually tells you a bit about taking a derivative of something. Um, but yeah, this, this GPS story is, is absolutely fascinating. Um, in, in the book, I, I, I set it up by saying, um, I am sort of traveling down a road and, you know, I'm driving to work basically. And, and a lot of us have run into this problem where you hit traffic. So then you, you know, pull out your phone or maybe your GPS unit and uh, you try to find an alternate route. And a lot of times when you do that, especially in my case, you know, with Google, uh, it'll take me through someplace I've, I've never driven through before. Uh, so I, I, you know, like to have this thing on to just guide me through and it tells me where to turn and, and, you know how how long I have to take uh, to get to, uh, to to work. The thing is that really uh, relies on the assumption that you know the GPS is accurate. So you know if this is off even by I don't know half a mile, then I may be turning on the wrong street and I may never get to work. And the funny thing is that these GPS systems all work by bouncing signals off GPS satellites, which are in orbit around the Earth. And anytime you transmit anything over a very large distance and, you know, the ground to a satellite in orbit is reasonably large, um, it takes a finite amount of time for that to happen. Even if it's something traveling at the speed of light, uh, like the signal from your cell phones are or your GPS unit. So what I 
do in the book is I, I walk through a, a, a really interesting finding from Einstein called time dilation. So Einstein found in, in about 1905 that um, moving clocks travel, uh, moving clocks are slow. So if you were to jump on a spaceship and uh, take a trip to Mars, uh, by the time you get back to Earth, uh, you might have aged uh, one hour, but the uh, entire world would have aged maybe two hours. Um, so this is really this is really groundbreaking at the time you can imagine. It was sort of um, earth-shattering to think that time was somehow relative, and this is exactly why Einstein has his theory of relativity. Uh, and this actually happens with GPSs. So the uh, GPS satellites in orbit are traveling at some velocity, orbiting the planet, and um, we here on Earth uh, are traveling at a much lower velocity relative to the center of, of the uh, planet. So there really is this uh, effect going on. It turns out I, I, I calculated in the book that one second on a GPS satellite is about one point, maybe five or six, seven zeros, and then eight, three, nine seconds to us. So in other words, there's a little fraction, tiny fraction of a difference between how time is measured with the GPS satellite, uh, on the GPS satellite, and how time is measured on the clocks in our GPS unit in the car. And linearization comes in because we say, well, if you're an engineer and you want the GPS system to work, you need to account for this discrepancy. And one of the ways you could do that is with some basic calculus, specifically this idea of, of linearization. That's extremely interesting. And when you talk about equations, because one of the things that I firmly believe is I believe that equations are the language of the universe. And what always surprises me is how there's sometimes the same equation appears in several apparently unrelated environments. And you bring this up when you discuss the logistic equation, because you discuss it both in the uh, area of productivity and also in the area of sustainability. And maybe you could describe how these two phenomena are linked by one equation. Yeah, so, so the, uh, the, I, I totally agree, by the way, that... Um, uh, the the uh, one equation might represent so many different things, and that's that's actually one of the beautiful things about, about math. And, uh, in, in in regards to pro to productivity and and logistic equations specifically, in uh, I, I think this might be in chapter four of the uh, of the book where the logistic equation first pops up. The, uh, the the scenario that I introduce is that you know maybe you're you're at a conference, you're at a meeting, you're in a classroom. And um, somebody in the classroom is sick. So uh, you're not sure who it is, but there's certainly with any um, contagious infection, let's say maybe it's a cold, uh, a contagious disease, there might be a, a certain rate of infection. You know? So th there's a certain likelihood that you might contract the illness. Um, and it turns out if you do some very simple math, you can come up with an equation for this that uh, is called the logistic equation. And it has a, a, a graph for the number of infected individuals that kind of looks like an S. So initially, you know, the infection spreads and then it reaches a, a sort of point where it's spreading the fastest. Uh, and then assuming you are enclosed in this room and nobody leaves, then of course everyone would get infected eventually. So that explains sort of the S shape. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that this S shape appears Appears all over the place in other places. So if you've ever looked at, at the uh, graph of a population of a particular country or the world for that matter, it has much the same shape. So the population rises uh, seemingly exponentially at first, but then uh, sort of the curse of finite resources and, and maybe uh, disease and, uh, and uh, pollution take over and slows down that uh, increase. Uh, and then eventually, because we're in a finite planet, we know that population uh, growth has to stall. Um, so this is another example of this logistic equation showing up not only in the spread of infectious diseases, but also in the growth rate of our population. And, then, and I'll throw in one more, which is um, you can imagine uh, these viral videos on YouTube. So how do these get uh, started? Well, somebody makes a video that is very popular, only has a few followers at first, but then it gains traction. So all of a sudden we have maybe a, a sort of exponential increase in viewership. Uh, and then maybe it reaches a high point where it's featured on some news channel. Uh, and then after that it's had its sort of 15 minutes of fame, so viewership starts to, to, to uh, drop off. So you again get this sort of S-shaped curve. Um, and actually the logistic equation is, is 
There's a model for all of these three phenomena and so many more, especially in sustainability, which is where I, I talk about it in the chapter with relation to um, sustainable fisheries. Yeah, that was extremely interesting. And I remember the first place that I was introduced to the logistic equation was in the spread of a rumor. And right. it's sort of like the spread of an infectious disease. I guess you can think of a rumor as being an infectious <laughs> disease. <laughs> but one of the things I think that we both share about the philosophy of mathematics is that it not only tells you quantitatively what's happening if you solve the equations, but it also tells you qualitatively what it it has because most of us go through life, uh, we say things like we're going fast rather than we're going 65.3 miles per hour. And if you look at mathematics, and this is one of the things in, that you do in the book, you describe certain phenomena qualitatively rather than exactly and quantitatively. And I think that that's very useful. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that's where um, the structure of the book uh, lends itself to, to that connection. So uh, we all have our intuition with um, things like the cooling of coffee. Um, and if you know that coffee is cooling, well, what are we talking about? We're talking about the temperature of the coffee. So cooling means that the temperature is getting lower. So now you're talking about a decreasing function. So that's a, that's a qualitative description, but, but you've, you've, you've taken a few steps now to making it quantitative. You know, so maybe you can draw an example of the function for the temperature of the coffee. Uh, and I, I think that... I, I really try to uh, to utilize that sort of you know reverse engineering, so to speak, um, to to help the reader uh, use their their daily experiences with daily intuition uh, to sort of discover the, the actual calculus behind these things. I think that's an extremely good teaching tool as well, and it's one that should be incorporated in math education as soon as kids start taking mathematics, because you want them to get the idea that mathematics is not something we study between 2 and 3 p.m. Mathematics is something that we look at as a way to understand what's happening to us and as a way to improve our lives. And when you start looking at things through the lens of mathematics, I think not only does the clarity of your focus uh, improve, but it also makes you realize how all these things are sort of linked together. Sometimes the same equation, like the logistic equation, describes a number of things. But the more sophisticated that you are in describing things mathematically, I think the more you appreciate the world. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, you know, the, the, one of the chapters in the book is, is called Connected by Calculus. And it's exactly that idea that you, you, one equation, one concept in math may uh, connect a variety of different phenomena together. The, the other thing I'll say to piggyback off that comment is that um, uh, when you succeed in, in casting a problem in mathematical form, you really open up a, a huge uh, array of possibilities because once you sort of mathematize a problem, that's, this is what I call it in the book, uh, you are at liberty to use all of the results uh, known in math. So if you uh, can write uh, an equation uh, for your phenomenon, maybe you can, I don't know, take the derivative, or maybe you can uh, uh, find the roots of the equation. And, and in other words, you can draw conclusions from the model that you have um, created. And sometimes these conclusions can be predictive. So just by formalizing the problem in math, you may be able to not only gain more insight, but actually make predictions, you know, outputs that you didn't uh, foresee when you first started uh, doing the, the, the mathematical modeling. I think that's absolutely right, and you brought it up when you were discussing Einstein's theory of relativity, because I'm absolutely certain that even though there's this, you know, there's this legendary uh, example that Einstein gave, is he imagined himself riding on a beam of light away from a clock, and if he were on the beam of light, he'd never see the clock change so that uh, you, it would be sort of like the photograph that was taken of the clock at the instant that the beam of light originated, and he realized that if you travel at the speed of light, maybe time doesn't change, but I'm sure when the time dilation equation and the other equations of relativity, like the uh, length contraction and the one that uh, mass gets heavier as you travel closer to the speed of light, I'm sure when he saw those, he said, wow, I just never expected this. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I'll say for the, for the benefit of the readers, um, uh, these things are, are, are so uh, strange to get their heads around, uh, uh, get your head around. But, um, you know, you might first 
just think that this is just not true. You know, there's there's something um, off. You know, the calculations are wrong, or there's some assumptions made that are not true. Um, but one of the good things about physics is that it's an experimental science. So, you know, uh, one of the easy ways to verify this, for example, time dilation effect is put a clock on a plane and have that plane fly around the world. Uh, and before you you uh, you have the plane take off, you synchronize the clock with one on the ground. Uh, fly the plane around the world, and then uh, when the plane lands, compare the two clocks. And this has actually been done, and it turns out that, sure enough, the uh, exact discrepancy from time dilation shows up. Um, and you know, it, it's it's so, so you know these concepts are as crazy as they seem. Um, really, come from. Uh, Actually, a, a pretty simple analysis in, in the time dilation context, uh, we can we can derive that equation with actually no more than algebra. Um, but as, as you say, once Einstein saw these things, it was a complete uh, a turn of events for the, the field of physics. Now there's modern-day physics is divided into non-relativistic uh, physics, where your speeds are slow enough compared to the speed of light that these effects are not uh, felt and relativistic physics where you're maybe moving close to the speed of light. This is, for example, the things that physicists who um, use particle accelerators have to uh, be concerned about because some of those particles really do um, move very close to the speed of light. Oscar, one of the things that I enjoyed about your book is that for most people who teach calculus, we sort of slog through the mechanics of actually finding derivatives so that we can get to problems such as optimization problems, which tell you the best way to do things. And you introduced this through the problem of where should you sit in a theater in order to get the best view. But there are also other problems worth discussing. Maybe you could say something about this and some other problems that appeal to you in this area? Sure, yeah. So, so the, the main um, uh, 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 appearance of optimization in the book, I believe, is in Chapter 5. And um, I, I, I really wanted to do this, uh, uh, keep going on this, um, you know, use our intuition to tell us about um, the math idea. And the way I introduce optimization is by uh, thinking about just throwing a air. And this is another one of these strange things that is true when you stop and think about it. But if you throw a cup in the air, um, you know, eventually it falls to the ground. That's, that's you know, we're familiar with that. That's gravity. But um, that means that at some point, you know, it uh, was moving upward and then afterwards it was moving downward. So uh, at some point there must have been a point where the upward velocity was zero, which is really strange because you say this to a student, you say, well, the cup was um, stationary at some point and, uh, you know, in the vertical direction. That, that seems a little weird, but once you think about this trajectory in, uh, in your mind, it's actually the highest uh, vertical uh, position of the cup. So there's a really nice link between if I graph a function and I see that it turns around somewhere and also thinking about the maximum value of that function. And you can totally express this as saying that the function is, is pretty much flat at this little maximum value. And that's precisely what it means to have a zero derivative. Um, so there's the calculus. So in the book, I, I, I use that motivation to talk about optimization problems, problems where you want to maximize or minimize a certain quantity that um, we may not you know think about, but that are actually happening uh, every day around us. So one of the ones is the one you described where you walk into a theater and you may be interested to uh, figure out what's the best place that I can sit. Um, and I run through a, a sort of model of that in the book where uh, you're interested in getting the best viewing angle of the screen. If you sit uh, too close to the screen, then your sort of neck is twisted for the entire movie. Uh, if you sit too far away, then the screen looks maybe like five inches big or something. So there's a sort of optimum uh, uh, road to sit in to get that viewing angle. But I just want to mention two, uh, two or three other ones. Um, the blood vessel branching problem, I thought, is, 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 a, is a really neat application of this. So, uh, it, it, you know, if you're the human body and you're thinking about um, uh, 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 blood flow and trying to minimize, let's say, the resistance to blood flow, then you might want to focus on uh, branching uh, bigger uh, arteries to smaller ones at certain angles. And it turns out that there are some angles that minimize this resistance. Um, and, and this is the, uh, the, the discussion in, in uh, Chapter 5. And 
you know, uh, another good uh, uh, example is um, if you're a company, let's say, and or if you start your own business, you might be interested in maximizing your profit. So, you know, you, uh, you, you sell some products and that generates revenue, but um, it costs you a certain amount of money to make your product. So that's a cost. So your profit is your revenue minus your cost. Uh, and then you have some sort of function that maybe you can optimize. Maybe, uh, you know, for your particular company, selling 100 units is the maximum profit versus selling 50 or 125. Um, so I think those are all great examples of uh, optimization, and, and there's so many more. That um, this is one of the few topics in the book that I that I keep coming back to throughout the uh, throughout the book. Well, the one that I always liked when I was teaching calculus is an economic problem because yeah. um, I teach a lot of calculus for business students, and they ca- and students always say, "Where am I going to use this?" And I ask them to imagine a can of soup. And most cans of soup have something like 16 ounces. And I ask them, have you ever wondered why the cans are shaped the way they are and not flat like a pizza or long and thin like a strand of spaghetti? And they think about that. And there's really an optimal way to design a soup can in such a way that it contains a minima of the amount of soup that you want and cost the least. And I said, imagine that you're Campbell's soup and that you manufacture 10 billion cans of soup a year, which is, I think, what they do. If you're off by a penny on the cost, that's $100 million off of your bottom line on 10 billion cans of soup. So you got to, you know, you got to get these problems right. Exactly. And, you know, this this feeds in nicely to, uh, you know, there's a discussion in the book that I have of um, uh, trying to minimize the amount of uh, 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 fuel that gas that takes for me uh, to uh, drive from uh, work to home. So you know, if uh, for example, in my case in the book, I, I calculate that I save maybe I don't know a, a two tenths of a gallon of gas. You know, which is not that much. I, I don't know four dollars a gallon, right? That's not a lot of money. But I say in there, let's say your company like FedEx um, or UPS, and you have trucks. You know, thousands of trucks that drive I don't know hundreds of thousands of miles. Uh, every year, if you can save each truck, you know, a, a fraction of a dollar, that indeed adds up to a lot of savings um, throughout the whole company. So, you know, companies like FedEx, UPS, um, American Airlines, they really have teams of people who are just dedicated to optimizing their profit streams. And, uh, you know, there's one subset of, of, uh, of uh, engineering called um, operations research, which is dedicated just to exactly this, to try to um, – optimize things like uh, profits, revenue, minimize costs. So it's, it's a, one of the real uh, easy places to see calculus sort of at work behind the scenes. Um, Oscar, I've really enjoyed this talk, and you end the book with a couple of the deeper applications of calculus, Einstein's theory of relativity, and also the problem of determining the evolution and fate of the universe. These are problems in astronomy and physics, but do you think that as science progresses, we are going to find other deep applications of calculus in fields such as the life and the social sciences? Yeah, I I, I definitely think so. I think... um you know, currently mathematical biology is one of the sort of uh, hot fields um, that is, uh, it's, it's been, it's, a, it's a, in some sense a very old uh, field, but I think now with all the progress we've made uh, on the uh, supercomputing fronts, it is very easy to model very complicated systems uh, like the human heart or um, an organ, for example, uh, mathematically, and then try to, uh, you know, uh, determine some predictions from this, like we were, we were talking about earlier. So uh, the interesting thing is that at the very core, and, and this is one of the messages of the book, um, calculus describes change. So that's what sort of derivatives do. And then integrals and in calculus, when you combine them, which is what I refer to as the dream team, they really can have very powerful insights, such as telling you about the age of the universe and the fate of the universe. So, you know, when you start looking at very complicated problems, uh, for example, um, trying to understand uh, how the brain works or trying to uh, model the human heart, um, I have absolutely no doubt that at some point in the uh, mathematical analysis of this, you will, you will definitely end up using some version of calculus, whether a derivative, whether an integral or some, some combination, this sort of dream team. Yeah, I've always felt that when I um, that when I took calculus, I felt that calculus marked the difference between 
old ways of thinking and new ways of thinking. And I've always felt that if you go to a university, you cannot really consider yourself to be educated unless you take a course in calculus. <laughs> I think it really is one of those subjects where, you know, it, it, as you say, it's, you know, just historically appeared in the, what, like the 1600s was really when calculus started really. There were remnants of it all the way back to Archimedes, but 1600s is really when it started taking off. And it was a really big departure. Um, and if you uh, are able to study calculus, which I, I definitely encourage everyone to do, and I, and, I, and I hope that this book is at least a doorway into doing so, um, uh, calculus itself opens all these doors for you. So a, a very good follow-up would be maybe a course in differential equations, and then you could maybe understand some of these ideas of how to model the human heart, uh, blood flow in the heart or uh, population growth, um, things of this nature. And really anything else that you study in, in math, as, at some point uh, you can use what you learn in calculus to at least give you a little bit of insights. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really great course that I, I think I agree everyone should have uh, under their belts. I absolutely agree with you, and we've discussed the book, but let's end with a discussion of Oscar Fernandez. Do you have any future projects in mind? Oh, sure. So uh, my uh, my focus now is on thinking a bit about um, sort of uh, the context of this book and uh, uh, readers who might be interested in either a follow-up or um, maybe a prequel of sorts. Uh, so the, the, those are two sort of projects on the horizon that I, ha I have interest in. So a natural follow-up to, uh, to this, this book um, focused primarily on a Calculus One course. Um, so traditionally at the university level, we teach um, uh, three uh, uh, semesters, or if you're in a, if you're in a different uh, uh, system, you might only teach two semesters, but three subdivisions of calculus. Um, so the second one is it's also, uh, all three are fascinating, but uh, calculus too tends to be um, a bit more obscured by things like, like uh, infinite series and infinite sums, but there's they're fascinating stories there, just uh, all the same. And calculus three really starts doing things in three dimensions. Um, so you talk about curves in three dimensions, uh, and you talk about um, things that are somewhat physically like uh, physics-y, like electric fields, magnetic fields, and how you integrate over surfaces in three dimensions. So that's one of the sort of projects that's on my horizon. I'd, I'd be very interested in doing that. And the, the prequel version is, um, you know, uh, the appendix, uh, first appendix in the book, uh, I, I try to uh, give the reader a, a quick sort of refresher on pre-calculus. So describing functions and graphs. And um, I, I think it's it's as much as I could have done for, for this book, but I'm certainly interested in, in, in doing a, a sort of everyday pre-calculus idea where um, we discuss some of these uh, ideas from geometry and algebra and much much the same way to um, bring together the intuition you might have from things like triangles or squares and uh, talk about functions like quadratics and how you see those in the real world. Um, so, so those are certainly a few projects that I'm, I'm interested in doing in the future. Oscar, I wish you the best of luck with them and thanks for participating this afternoon. Take Thank care. you. Thanks for having me.